On this episode of The Golf Guy, we have the great good fortune to speak with Shirley Spork. Shirley is one of the original 13 founders of the LPGA Tour. Uh, Shirley grew up in Michigan, outside of Detroit, went to college there, won the National Collegiate Tournament, uh, won a whole bunch of tournaments uh, in Michigan, uh, actually subsequently became a member of the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame, uh, but uh, then is um, one of the founders of the LPGA Tour in the early 50s. So contemporaries who she played with include folks like Babe Diedrichson Zaharias, Louise Suggs, Marilyn Smith, Patty Berg, um, and um, she is in that group. Uh, and she, uh, as you'll hear, um, uh, in addition to playing the tour, um, has always been um, interested in teaching the game. And that really has been a big part of her professional career. Um, she was, as you'll hear, doing both playing on tour and teaching, which is um, kind of a tough road to hoe. For many years, um, she, in the late 50s, was the founder of the teaching division of the LPGA and uh, uh, twice voted the LPGA Teacher of the Year. Um, ultimately, uh, a few years ago, got inducted in the PGA Golf Hall of Fame, which is quite an honor. Uh, but uh, you'll hear, you know, she spent many years at different clubs, including at Tamaris for many years in the Palm Springs area where she still resides. Uh, and um, really a phenomenal career in the game of golf. I would encourage folks, if, uh, if they find this interesting, as, as I certainly do, to uh, uh, there's a documentary called The Founders, fittingly enough, uh, that was made a few years ago, a 90-minute documentary. You can find it on Amazon Prime. Um, it's really well done um, and features, of course, Shirley and a number of the other founders uh, with some great old footage. Um, really well done. I highly recommend that. Um, and Shirley's biography, Called From Green to Tea, is also um, a really good read. And uh, you'll hear in this first story, I think, from Shirley Why, that's entitled From Green to Tea. So upcoming, uh, our conversation with LPGA founder Shirley Spork. Welcome, uh, everyone, to another edition of The Golf Guy, and it is my great pleasure and honor to have LPGA royalty with us today. Um, Shirley Spork, one of the um, original 13 founders, has uh, been kind enough to join with us. Shirley, good to see you. Um, thank you for making the time. Um, and, um, you know, just to sort of um, maybe get the conversation started a little bit, um, I had read your book, which I loved. I thought it was great. Um, and uh, I thought maybe we could get started by just talking about how you got started in golf, which I thought was so interesting. You know, back in Michigan, you were, as I recall, lived near the Bonnybrook course. And uh, maybe you can tell us how um, you got started in the game. Well, I was very fortunate to my family. We moved out of the city, of, of, out of the downtown part of the city of Detroit, out yeah. to the outskirts, and our property adjoined the golf course. And uh, the golfers sliced the ball into <laughs> our property, and I found the golf balls and sold them back to the golfers. And the little kids in the neighborhood who caddied in that era, caddies got to play free on Mondays at the golf courses. Okay. And they said, if, uh, if I had a club, I could play with them. So I saved up my money and my mother gave me streetcar fare. I took the streetcar down to the city, down in the city of Detroit. And there was a big barrel of golf clubs and they were tall ones and short ones and wooden ones and iron ones. And any club in the barrel, and this was at the SS Kresge Drugs Dime right. Store. Dime Store, right. And it was a dollar. Any club in the bag was a dollar. So I chose one that was short 
It was straight and it had a number 10 on it. I didn't even know. I have no idea what number 10 meant. But it was short and straight and I got that call. So on my way home through the neighborhood, walking down the, the street, I, I saw a couple of the boys. I said, I can play with you now. I can play with you. I have a club. I have a club. And they all laughed at me because the club I had was a putter. A putter, right. <laughs> so I started with the last club to use, and I'm still trying to get to the tee. So I, I really learned the club, the game backwards. I'm thankful I did because putting is the most important part of the game. I, I was just going to say, right, it's kind of your fortune. That's absolutely the most well, important part of the game. Right, absolutely. The, the one thing very important about putting is in the world today, any golf course that you go to, the hole is the same size on every golf course. Right. And why that is, is that when they were building the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse at St. Andrews, there were drainage tile left from the roof. And prior to that, they used to play the game to a stick. They didn't have a hole. So they took this drainage tile and stuck it in the ground, and that became the hole. And that's the size of our holes all over the world today. Wow, I didn't know that. That's a very good story that was given to me by Dr. Harry, Gary Wyron, a historian of PGA Golf. Yeah, the, the master professional in Florida, very famous fellow, right? Absolutely, Gary Wyron. That's a great story. I did, I did not know that. So, so you get your putter as your first club. You're probably what around twelve or so, maybe uh, young age. Uh, between eleven and twelve years. Twelve, old. yeah. And so um, you're yeah. not a member of a club, and so I know. You know, before you were able to compete in the Detroit district events, you needed to be a member. But I guess before that, the women public well, links ladies let you play, right? Well, first of all, there were two holes. One went up the hill, and one came down the hill. Okay. And I found some wooden tees and I teed them up and used my number 10 club. <laughs> <laughs> and I hit it down the fairway and teed it up, hit it up on the green and put it, and then I hit it down the hill. And then the ranger would come by and chase me off the course because I didn't have a ticket to play. Right, right. It was a daily fee golf course. Okay. So um, that was how I got it started. There was no junior golf. In, right, right. In that era. But in the seventh and eighth grade, there was a public women's public links golf association. Okay. And they allowed me to play with them. So my father, on his way to work, took me to school, and the ladies picked me up at school, and we went to play once a week in the spring uh, before school's out for summer. And, uh, and uh, they brought me back to the school so I could get on the school bus to go home. And that's how I started competition. And, wow. Um, I played in the... I would say the low 90s. I don't think I broke 90 for a couple of years, but they had a free golf clinic uh, sponsored by the PGA members at a local golf course called Redford. It isn't there anymore, Redford Golf Course. And um, it was four weeks, once a week, and it was in the evening, and I rode my bicycle and my golf clubs. By then, I had some used golf clubs. And... Uh, they walked by on the line and we hit balls and they, each pro that went by said, you have a bad grip, you have a bad grip. I used to get a blister on my thumb. And uh, so the second time we went, I said, I know I have a bad grip. Would you tell me how to <laughs> fix it? Yeah. Hold it the right way? Right, right. <laughs> so that's what I learned from that clinic. I learned how to grip the club. And uh, prior to that, I always sliced the ball because I was gripping it wrong. Yeah. So in teaching throughout my life, I've always felt that the grip was the most important part of your connection to the game, because if you have the club held correctly and the right pressure, you have a chance to swing it. Right. So it's, it's a very large, um, important fact that all good players have a good grip. For sure. 
for sure. So um, yeah, it's your only connection to the club. So it's super important, no doubt about it. So you're playing with the women. And then if I'm remembering right, when, um, but you can't play in the district events because you're not at a club, but then Lake Point Country Club, if I'm remembering right, got, uh, um, gave you a membership, right? And that entered your, to do the uh, Detroit Lake, events? Lake Point Country Club was part of the Detroit District Women's Golf Association. Okay. And uh, someone that I had played with that took me in as uh, helping me and being a mentor, yeah. uh, convinced them to give me a membership so I could play in the tournament. Yeah, yeah. So, for those years in high school, I, I participated in the Detroit District Women's Golf Association. Well, in that era, all over the United States, you could not compete in your state tournament unless you belonged to a private club anywhere. Okay. In the anywhere, yeah. So that way I was able to play in the state and then I got to win the state. And then I got that invitation, gave me an invitation to go play in the title holders, which is like our masters in right. the Augusta Country Club, which adjoins the master's course. Right, right. In, in Augusta, Georgia. So there is a way to get going forward, but it wasn't an easy one by any means. <laughs> but, um, and then um, I continue on and in the very beginning, I read in a newspaper about a Patty Bird and a Dave Zaharias. And I thought, yes. and I read about Dave Zaharias that she had competed in the Olympics. Olympics, right. She had conquered like five or six different sports. And I thought, wow, if that lady could do all that, maybe I could do one. So <laughs> I, my heart was set on becoming a golf pro. Yeah. But they started, and then when I was in high school, they started the WPGA, Women's Professional Golf Association, and they they were in existence in 1946 uh, and seven. Uh, no, I'm wrong there. I was in high school, so it'd be 1943, four, and five, something like that. Yeah, and ran out of money, so that was the end of the tour. So that's why I went to college because I there was no golf course. No golf course. Right. So I, my parents said, you know, you better go to school and get a degree and become a golf, become a teacher, and that's what I did. And that's why my entire uh, life basically has been teaching and being a teacher, not a player. Right. When we started the tour, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, there weren't there wasn't much money and many many tournaments to play in. So I was very fortunate to stick it out through college and get a degree in teaching. So I was set to be able to make a living. Right. Absolutely. And and you know, and we should mention you're at college and you win the NCAA tournament, right? In 1947. When I went went to college, I was studying to be a physical education teacher. Right. And in that era, women were not supposed to compete in individual sports, which were bowling, tennis, and golf. Yeah. So therefore, when the tournament was going to be held at Ohio State University. It was called the National uh, Collegiate Tournament. It wasn't NCAA or anything like that. Or WHO. I see. So we had a substitute teacher. And uh, I said, you know, I have this form that has to be filled out. I have to get it in the mail. Would you please sign this for me? She didn't read it. She just signed it. So I paid my own way to go play in that tournament. And I won it. And, and I, you won it. And that was probably what, at the Scarlet Course at Ohio State, right? 1947, I won it. Right. And it right. was match play. So when I went back to school, there was no recognition given except the men's department gave me a jacket, and but they couldn't give me a letter, you know, like your big letter. So 71 years later, I went back there and they gave me my big E and I thought, wow, 
That's forever. It only took 71 years to get it. <laughs> I, I remember reading about that. It was fantastic. That's right. Not too many years ago is that that happened. Then finally, like 2014 or something, they gave you your letter. That's fantastic. And I think it's now Eastern Michigan University and they gave you your E. Um, that's fantastic. Um, so so you're, you're in college. Um, and as you were saying, you know, the WPGA didn't really make it. And so, um, and, and oh, I'm, I'm able to compete in, in all, all the big amateur tournaments. Right. You see, right. The amateur so I get right. to go to the women's Western open and any tournament that has a name open on it means amateurs and, and, pros, and pros both. Right. Right. So this tournament was held at Skycrest Country Club in the Chicago area. Right. The person that was in charge and who was the pro there was Babe Deeks and Saharius. She was married at the time, Babe. And we're having breakfast. And this was in kind of May of 1949. And we're having breakfast. She and her husband and Marilyn Smith and I and babe and I'm sitting across from her and uh, she said, "You know, kid, we're going to have a tour. We need we need numbers. Why don't you turn pro?" <laughs> I said, "Well, yeah, babe. How would I do that?" And she stood up and she came around the table and hit me on the head and she said, "I deem you a pro. You go down there in that tee and you tell me you're a pro." That's how I turned pro. I walked down the hill. Wow. From the clubhouse to the first tee. Mrs. Dennehy was the uh, president of the Western, and she was announcing the people off the tee. And I said, Excuse me, Mrs. Dennehy. I said, uh, Announce me as a pro today. And she said, Does your mother know that? <laughs> I said, Oh, no, but she'll know tonight when I call. And that's how I turned <laughs> So you're yeah, like what twenty, like twenty two years old or so, right? Eight yeah. of us that played, and some of them were left over from the WPGA, which was Patty Berg and Louise Suggs, and Marilyn Smith and I were playing with Louise Suggs, and lo and behold, it's a six fifty to sixty mile an hour wind. Oh wow! Some holes when we walked to the green with our putter, the ball would roll off the green. And on one hole, I took the club back to swing and I lost my balance and I missed the ball. Oh boy. And that day, one person broke 80 and Louise Sub shot 79. Wow. That's how, uh, and I think I shot 89. Oh, you know? wow. And probably last, but anyhow, that's how I turned pro. <laughs> And you're like at that age, you're what, like 22 or so, 23? You're you're pretty young, right? When you turned pro, how old were you? Around 22 or so, 23 then? Well, I was uh, when I turned pro. Yeah. Well, I just graduated college. Yeah, so like, yeah, so like 22. Yeah. Yeah. 21. Yeah. 21. Yeah. So that fall. I was committed to teach, to teach school. I was going to teach at Bowling Green State University. Right. And the tour started in those days. The tour always started in January in Florida. And it worked its way on the south coast all the way to the west coast, then up the west coast, and then across the country back to New York. So we had uh, babe convinced sporting goods she signed up with wilson sporting goods and she convinced lb Isley, the president to uh, hire a tournament director she and her husband wanted to run the tour but patty and some of the girls said no we don't want one of our members running it we want a, a tournament director so we got fred corcoran yeah who had been the head of the pga he was the tour director right there. right so he started and his job was to go find some money and to make tournaments so they uh he was in new york and he contacted alvin hanmacher who made clothes hanmacher right and he had a sportswear line called the weather vane so their sign was a weather vane north south east west so 
Fred Corker was able to convince him to put up $15,000 and 3,000 would go north, south, east, west. We'd play four courses and end up in New York for the final 3,000. Okay. So took the whole year to do those four. So in yeah. between, Fred Corcoran could try to convince uh, Rotary Clubs, Rotary Clubs and civic groups and beer uh, sponsors <laughs> to put up <laughs> money for us to fly for. So uh, doing that, I'm committed to teach school, but I was able to teach. I, I went to Bowling Creek because they had a nice, they had a golf course right on the campus and I could teach all the golf classes. And in the winter I could teach volleyball and things indoors. Right. So I taught on Monday through Thursday, drove from Bowling Green to Detroit, got on a plane, flew to, to, to Florida, played without a practice round, but I, Marilyn, my dear friend Marilyn, gave your note from her practice round what club she used. So that's how I try to play on the tour. Well, that's, that's not the way to do it, but no. it was a way to, to, to compete. So I was trying to teach school and play and teach school and play. And, you know, my mother finally said to me, you know, you better try to do what you want to know, not what we wanted you to do. And right. said, I think you want to play golf. So I gave up teaching golf and uh, was teaching school and golf. That's physical education subjects. But um other than that, um, we started our tour, and in 1953, April of 1953, we were scheduled for the very first time to have a tournament in Southern California at Tamaris Country Club. Okay. Second golf course, 18-hole golf course ever built in the desert. And it was built in, and opened in 1952 when Ben Hogan was the pro. They had him as the pro to sell right. memberships and lots and stuff like right. that. Right. He just left and Ellsworth Fines came in as the pro. He had been the pro at Wiltshire Country Club. Yeah. So I, when we were playing there, I thought, wow, this would be great. I could teach here in the winter and then I could play the tour in the summer. So I went in the office and I said, who do I apply for to get a job? And she said, well, you're in luck. The board's having a meeting. Let me go and see if you can talk to them. So she came back and she said, they'll talk to you. So I went in this room and there was uh, Tom May from the May Company and Orbach from Orbox and yeah. people that were on the board. And I introduced myself and I said, I have teaching credentials. I'd like to teach here in the winter. And the season was, uh, it started uh, November 1st. And it was over May 1st. That was their season in the winter. Yeah. That was great because I could then play in the summer. So right. They said, well, what would you have to have? And I said, well, you know, if the wind blows and I don't have any lessons, I have to have, to have some kind of a guarantee. I got to eat just like you do. <laughs> so uh, we made an agreement as to a, a fee amount that I had to have for months. They never, ever had to come up with it. I always had plenty of lessons. But uh, they gave me the start of teaching in the desert, in the Coachella Valley to this day. Uh, with a radius uh, um, touching some 15 cities. Right. The Coachella Valley. We have over 100 golf courses now. Yes, yes. 27 holes, 36 holes. Yeah. And to think it started with one little O'Donnell golf course in 1929, and Tom O'Donnell was uh, in the oil business in Bakersfield, and he right. the bomb strings in the winter. So golf in itself has developed the Coachella Valley because it was a resort area and it was a short season. And um, by builders coming in and building a golf course and then selling lots and then enclosing it to uh, 
this is how it developed. And, and, and because of golf, it's functioning humongously big with the same little dinky robes. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of golf out there, no question about it. Um, so during, I, I, uh, Shirley, I want to just go back. So during this time, you're still playing on the tour and teaching both and trying to do both and like what in the winter teaching and then playing in the summer. I mean, you're trying to do both, right? Yeah. Well, we, uh, see, uh, the golf manufacturers after World War II, see, during World War II, they weren't allowed to make golf clubs because of steel. Right, right. So there was Wilson's Falling McGregor, but there was a company in Chicago that Mr. Woolley bought up their supply that they couldn't use or make manufacture and started Golf Craft, which is- Oh, the company, right, right, right. Okay, so Wilson had Patty Bergen Bay and Spalding had Maryland and McGregor had Louise. So I called and said, you know, I don't have any money for Golf Craft. I'd like to be on in your, on your staff, on your advisory staff. And that what we did was service their accounts and give clinics. Patty Bird probably gave the most clinics in her whole life. Everybody's seen a Patty Bird clinic. Right. So we would go to the club and play with the men's champion and the ladies' champion and the pro. First, we'd give a clinic and show them how they hit it top it, slice it, hook it, and all that, and then show them how to correct it. And then we play nine holes and tell them what we're doing on each shot around the 18, the nine holes. And then they made golf clubs with our name on them, uh, Service Sport Golf Craft Clubs. So I, uh, and Marilyn, and Patty, we, we got seven cents a club. <laughs> so... Seven cents. Wow. Your company, okay. your company had two kinds of clubs. They had a, some they sold to stores and some they sold to pros. There were different lines and different right. prices. Right. So, Golfcraft uh, was very fortunate to supply all the clubs for Sears and Robot. Oh, wow. That's a so big account. They, yeah. They, they had a good income there. Yeah. Now, we as advisors, like Lloyd Manger was on our staff as an some of the men that played and won the Masters. Yeah. Uh, our job was to test the clubs. Today, you don't need that. They have machines that do it. Right, so right. They don't have advisory staffs anymore. Right. But we were the ones that said, we don't like the looks of it, the color of it. Uh, it doesn't hit it high enough, or, you know, right. kind of stuff. So we were their, their testers, but they don't need it today. Right. Right. That's true. Um, so let me ask you a little bit. This is so interesting, right? I mean, you had talked a little while ago how you read about Patty Berg, you read about Babe in the Olympics, and now you're, you know them and you're playing with them and, and Louise and stuff. What were, those are some tremendous personalities. What were those folks like playing on the tour uh, with? Well, I think we were truly successful because each of us were different. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and, uh, some people had different interests. Um, uh, one of the ladies liked to like modern art, and like to go to the to the art studios and art museums when we come to a certain town. And of course, we drove everywhere. We drove forty thousand miles a, a year. Yeah, the travel must have been unbelievable, uh, right? I mean, you had that. Hotel, no motel. The Holiday Inns didn't start till in nineteen fifty something or other. So we stayed in motor courts, or we stayed with members. Yeah, as a guest, and um, we traveled like a caravan. And we were like a circus. We just went from town to town, and town to town. But some of us uh, liked to fish, and so we. We asked the members, is there a place around where we could go lake where we can go fishing? Um, someone liked to cook. Uh, can we cook for you in your house? We, we didn't have anywhere to, to eat except 
canned peas and carrots and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah. um, when they wanted to entertain us, we'd say, can we cook for you? Because right. we right. miss good home cooking. So that, that was a problem for us. Um, luckily, there were no freeways, no freeways. We went through every little town. Wow. And sometimes we would travel 500 miles, sometimes more than that, to get from one tournament to the other. Wow. And, of course, uh, we all had a job. Someone had to mark the course. Someone had to, to make uh, fruit the rulings. Uh, Marilyn and I would stop at a pay phone on, on Sunday night as we started driving to get a little mileage off before we're going to the next place. We had to call APUP and Golf World. Those are the three uh, print outs that gave our uh, whatever happened and who won and what we, we did and blah, blah, blah. So uh, other than that, we gave a little golf clinic where we each hit a different shot. Uh, and I did a clown act, which I learned from Joe Crook. Joe Kirkwood Sr., who was a trick shot artist. Oh, a famous uh, trick shot artist, yeah. yeah. Taught me different shots. And uh, I would dress sort of like a clown and uh, entertain at the, at the swing parade. We call it the swing parade. And each one had a certain club they used. And uh, as we prof got proficient in things like the one iron, Shirley Englehorn would hit the one iron Wow. Fishing in a one iron, some people don't even know what a one iron is, but I, I, it, like it is. That's, yeah. yeah, I was going to say that's the hardest, one of the hardest clubs to yeah, hit is a one iron. That's a hard club. So we, we had, we hired an ex caddy with a blowhorn to announce us on the tee. He had a, a card table, a blowhorn, and a, a folding chair. And he would stand on the tee and announce us up. We had to make the pairings ourselves. So you don't lose anybody. You always put it on a three by five card. You know, if you don't look at a scoreboard and miss a name, you had all the, you know, you, when they came in, you wrote their score on this little piece of cardboard and you could move the, 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 the uh, three by five cards around to make the fairies for the next day. And rulings, you uh, had a rules committee of the players. You, you voted and you ruled on your own people. So we were self-efficient. <laughs> yeah, really, right. And but, you had that, uh, yeah. You know, and, everything has to start somewhere. Uh, and today, uh, you know, the girls out there today, it's a different world because it's so minutely different and the coaching and the management and the administrative uh, people they hire to help them go forward. Um, the thing that made our our tour grow the most was what we're what we're doing this this year is celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Right. And when Title IX passed, it allowed uh, scholarships for women in golf equal right. to the number of women of men's scholarships. Right. So that therefore, in, in the first year when they were talking about having it happen, they didn't think it would pass, and it passed. And they didn't. They weren't ready. They didn't have any coaches. Right. So men right. took the coaching jobs. Right. Today, there's most of them are, are lady are coaching, and uh, they've they've taken in uh, the whole world. We're global. Yeah. We're, we, uh, we're just a little part of it now. There's seven tours out there. And uh, luckily, the LPG has three of them. We have our main tour. We have the Symmetra tour, which is a baby tour. And now we have taken over the left tour, which is a European, the ladies' European tour. Right. So we have three tours that we can have Americans on. Also, our teaching division can go over to England and, and Europe and, and start having a better junior program to get more English women 
playing on our tour. When, when the Asians first appeared on our tournaments, uh, I said, well, what, how are we going to handle this? Because, you know, we're going to let foreign players play. And the answer they gave me was, well, we'll just charge them more uh, entry fee. I said, that, that's not the answer. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. Uh, the Japanese were the first to come, and then the uh, uh, Koreans, and then, then the uh, Chinese, and then the, uh, uh, I can't think of it. And there's seven tours. So if you have a daughter that's a good player and played, you know, high school golf and college golf and wants to continue, she has a chance of uh, working, qualifying for one of those tours or she can uh, become uh, in the media, she can be in sales, design of clothes, uh, tournament directors, uh, all kinds of ways to stay in the game. So golf is, uh, as, as we know, in the pandemic that we've gone through in two years, uh, it's the only sport you can play because it's outdoors. I know it's it. The growth has been incredible during the pandemic because it's a socially distant sport. And it's having, great. Having, and having um, dinner and being with John Solheim for the Solheim Cup, I said, "How's your business right now?" This was in September at the Solheim Cup in Toledo. He said, "We're four weeks behind in orders." They can't make them club can't staff. make it fast enough. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 tremendous that the more people are in the game and they have to learn the game. So therefore, uh, our teachers have a chance to teach them. And here in the desert, I think I've talked to two or three ladies and they're, they're book solid. They're just book solid for lessons. So I I'm, I'm thrilled for that because um, being a founder of both the tour and the teaching division, uh, which was not easy because um, when we were a small group and near the end of the first 10 years, 1957, eight and nine, I brought up at our annual meeting that we should think of having a teaching division. Right. And they turned me down the first year, the second year, and the third year passed by one vote. And I finally, a few years ago, I asked one of our, our uh, founders, why did you keep uh, voting it down? And they, their answer was, well, it's going to take players away from our tour. <laughs> I said, I don't think so. But also, she, they said it would, they're only just, they're just gym teachers. And I said, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're people that have to learn how to teach. Just because you play doesn't mean you know how to right. teach. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you you were the founder of that whole teaching division. You developed all those manuals and stuff to help people learn how to teach, right? Well, I worked very very closely in education with the National Golf Foundation. I I worked uh, seven years of uh, probably in the 70s, uh, developing, helping develop their in, instructional films. Uh, I went to colleges and, and conducted five-day uh, graduate courses for teachers to teach, learn how to teach. They thought they were taking the course to learn about their golf game. I said, well, we'll, we'll take pictures of your swing and then we'll show you how to correct it on the film, and then you'll begin to learn how to correct errors. Uh, I, I traveled uh, the West Coast and Lorraine Abbott. We just divided the country in East and West, and I took half, she took half for seven years. And then we had seminars uh, where we had the uh, Jim Fleck come, and Dr. Bill Strasbaugh, and all yeah. the leading uh, uh, teachers of the game, plus uh, professors of kinesiology and anatomy, and we talked about every part of the game, the importance of it, and, and how to teach groups. 
and how you teach a left-handed from a right-handed and where do you put them in the line and you know all that right. stuff. So uh, I'm very proud of that. Um, we also used that teaching kit uh, in our uh, development of the teaching division for the first uh, 20 years we used that teaching manual would had a section on how to run tournaments, what kind of tournaments. It had a, a section on uh, exercises and, and, um, and um, ways to uh, correct errors. So there were certain, you have to have a chart and you, you see an error and you look at the chart and it tells you how to correct it. That, that took a lot of time. And I'm sure. We brought in some key teacher coaches and we stood we went to a hotel in chicago and there are three different we were in three different rooms and we set our clocks and we'd take a subject and we each go to our room and write on the subject let's say it was topping the ball whatever and we wrote and then we went and got together and then we corrected each other and then we wow. went at another copy and that's how we wrote the teaching manual <laughs> that's great yeah. that's great well teachings come a long way with all the video there is now it's really amazing what you can well, do i'm sure you know it's a wonderful shell <laughs> great <laughs> great for us because the more that we the more they read the more that confused they get and that is true. Is That's true. All this stuff and get back to the plain, normal parts of it as to how you hold it, how you stand, and how you begin the golf swing. And, and, uh, and asking beginners, well, what's your theory on the game, you know? And they start talking, and I said, no, no, just give me three words. <laughs> so it's taken me 70 years, and I have three words. What are they? Set, turn, release. Get set, turn, and release your effort. And that's it. I can write three chapters on those three things, three <laughs> words. That's fantastic. I love it. That's great. Um, so um, you spent most of your adult life, you know, doing the teaching. Did you ever, and, and, and you were, justifiably proud of all the of all that you did in that regard um it was great i'm curious Shirley, did you ever think back about whether she what would it have been like if i spent more time playing and and as opposed to teaching and you know focused more well, on the tour see i never had a coach and i never had anybody tell me i could do it if you don't have somebody to tell you you can do it you're not going to do it. Yeah. So I go out there to play, and the big three were Babe, Patty, and Louise. Right. And they're going to win the money. But they're established. They've played golf for a long time and won a lot of tournaments. I'm a nobody. And nobody's there to say, you could do it. Until way later in my life when I met a mentor in, in 1951, Mr. Joey Ray was a PGA pro at Pasatiempo in the Monterey Peninsula area. And, uh, you know, he said, surely you have teaching credentials. And there's a, a gentleman that just passed away that, at this little nine-hole golf course up here and above Santa Rosa and Ukiah. He said, why don't you go up there and give a clinic and then apply for the job and, and just run the golf course? I said, oh, okay, I'll go try. <laughs> so he, he said, you could do it. You have the credentials. You have the background. He's the first one that told me I could do something. You know, yeah. If you don't have somebody to tell you you can do it, you're not going to do it. That's a great point. You're totally correct. That totally correct. And boy, Pastiempo is a wonderful golf course. Um, well, uh, uh, and Marion yeah. Hollins, I'm sure you know. I mean, Marion Hollins was instrumental. Well, I came there. Yeah. A few years after Marion had passed away, and her home sits up just above. Now it's back in the in in the compound of the ownership. But the stories they told me about her, and, and she's being inducted in the World Golf Hall of Fame in March. 
Oh, great. I did not know that. That's she wonderful. She did not get along with Susie Burning. Oh, sure. Susie Maxwell Burning. I remember and, uh, her. Yeah. Collins, uh, and there's a book written on her and there's a tremendous, all that she did and in, in, she made a lot of money. Well, she grew up in money, but she made money in the oil fields in Bakerfield and she spent money like crazy. She entertained Hollywood people, they all came to Pasatiempo, and um, she was into all other sports also. And then she hired Ernest Jones to be the pro, and he was tops from New York. And right, right. He came out, and then, then you had the, uh, the depression, and she lost everything and went to work as a salesperson at Del Monte Properties. Okay. She was the one that uh, helped to design the uh, 16th hole at Cypress Point. Right. And uh, it's in all in her book, and it's a wonderful book to have to read. You can probably get it on Amazon. Yeah, I, I will do that. I've, I've read the story about the 16th hole at Cypress and how, you know, he wanted to make it a par four. And she said, no, you can do it as a par three. And she hit that shot yeah, and I, showed that it could be a par three. A famous story. Yeah, she was something. It's a beautiful course. When I, when I taught it at Pasatiempo one summer, that's how I met Joey Rick. He said, you know, there aren't many tournaments this year, this summer. You come and stay with my wife and I and you can teach. So I would, he would teach and I'd watch him and then we'd go talk about what he did. And then I'd go teach and he would, and then we'd go and talk about what I did to my student. So it was a trial and error between us as to what we thought about the swing and the importance of what does what in the swing. And so he became my mentor in uh, yeah, he was a great mentor for you, I know. Um, and it's it sounds like you've, you mentioned Jim Flick and a few of the others. Sounds like you've met a lot of the great teachers, well, I, Gary Wire. Yeah. Well, I've been to most PGA uh, annual meetings and so forth. And I guess the, the greatest honor that I could have ever received, I received in 2019 when I became a Hall of Fame member of the PGA. Absolutely. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Uh, I felt that I belong there. You did. You do. You absolutely do. Um, and, um, you know, the, and, and I, I just marvel at, you know, people, you know, that you uh, go back to like Patty Berg, Louise Suggs, Babe. I mean, those are the folks you grew up with. Marilyn Smith, you know, a lifelong friend I know. For you, I mean, you. I mean, you met Marilyn at the NC at the uh, National Collegiate Tournament, yes, right? Yes, that's and, how I first met her in uh, 1946, I think. Yeah. 46 or seven. Yeah. I won it in 47, but I think I met her in 46. And uh, she, her father, uh, took her to Spalding, and she got a contract with Spalding and started. Uh, giving clinics and the first couple of years on the tour, I could ride with her because they gave her a car. So I didn't have to worry about transportation. And uh, our parents taught us to write thank you notes. And whomever was the navigator wrote the notes and we talked about who we should send the notes to. And when we went back the next year, they remembered who we they were. They remembered, yeah. I mean, and you had to do all your own promotion back then for the tour. Yeah. I mean, you guys did it all, right? And we would, when we came to a town, our job was to go and we have printed up uh, posters and go to the stores and ask them if we could put it in their windows. And we'd go, if they had a farm club baseball team, we would go and hit balls in the ballpark and tell the people to come out to the golf course. Uh, Marilyn and I went to a boxing match. Oh, wow. Boxing Maryland, match. Wow. <laughs> I got it. Boxing ring after, you know, when they pull a bike down. And, right, right. Uh, said, you know, here I'm going to come out to the golf tournament. And, uh, we went to radio stations um, in little towns and talked about the game and hoped that they would come and 
at that time, we weren't really promoting junior golf at, at our clinics. Today, it's a big deal. Uh, the um, PGA First Tee, right. uh, USGA LPGA Junior Girls Golf. Uh, we have 551 sites of our membership, teaching memberships that are conducting these USGA LPGA wow. Junior Golf uh, wow. programs. We have one here in the Coachella Valley. Um, and uh, of course, uh, there are lots of junior programs. Oh, yeah. It's point where there's a little too many, I think. It's getting spread out, it's going to get closer together. But uh, these young kids can look, look at Tiger's son. He's oh, I know. I know. Perfect image of his dad. I well, and and look at and the women's tour today with the Corda sisters, and I right. mean it's it's they're phenomenal. I mean, I I look at Nellie Corda's swing, and it's as good a swing as you know, man or woman to me. I well, mean, it's great. The golf swing changed in my lifespan of seventy decades. Golf swing changed about every 10 years it's advanced let's put it that way it's not just changed it's advanced yeah, yeah. and years ago when you looked down the fairway you could tell nicholas and you could tell palmer and you could tell right. torino because they all had their own style right today everybody swings the same i know it's true and they're all robots they just are all perfect <laughs> But it's, it's whoever gets it in the hole first wins. Absolutely. Uh, that, know, that's not yeah. how far they hit it. You know, the USGA has this big deal about the club can only be so long this year. It, it isn't proven anything already at this tournament we just had the American Express. These young robots were hitting at 345. I can't see that far. I couldn't see the ball even <laughs> go that far. Uh, and, and even when the when the big three, Palmer Player and Nicholas, when they used to play in the Bob Hope Classic, we marveled at the fact that they could hit a four iron to a five par. Right. Now they're hitting a half wedge. What, what, Shirley, what do you think about the whole distance thing? Do you think they should do something with the equipment to sort of reduce well, the, what do you think? The problem is land. You can't find land. And right. You can't make the courses longer. Now, right. Nicholas owns the patent on the Cayman ball. Right. Which are reverse <laughs> dimples. And he is waiting for the time when the tour players are going to have to use that ball and bring the game back to where it should be because par for the pros in tournaments is not 72. Right. 68 because they can hit every five par in two. Right. And, right. and dog leg holes that you go with the trees, they can go right over the trees, over the corner. Right. And whereas a normal player has to go down and turn the corner and then go, you know, so, uh, but that's just for tournament play. Um, clubs, uh, the USGA, I think should, I really think they should have more control than they had recently. Years ago, they had a lot of control. And years ago, every golf ball was the same. It had the same number of dimples on it. Right. It all wound. Uh, now, Golf balls have two, three parts to them, and and, yeah. and uh, the you know, substance they use is different. Um, I never thought the price of a putter would be four hundred dollars for a putter. I know it's crazy. Oh, <laughs> goodness, and, and a shaft five hundred dollars a shaft to put in a driver. I know. Well, that's too much. It's a lot of money, but I, I uh, and I know, you know, of course, you know, Mike Wan, who I know you knew as LPGA commissioner, who's now over at the USGA. I think a lot of people, 
uh, waiting for the USGA to do something about distance. That distance oh, report has been sitting there. about Mike Long leaving us as our commissioner, and I got to be with him at his new, new offices, is that um, they have 330 employees. Yeah. 330 full-time employees. <laughs> Why? Because they test agronomy, they test soil, and they, they test golf clubs, and they make the rules of golf. They work on uh, tournaments. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. And uh, Mike has been able to come in already. He got a second sponsor. So we're playing a tournament for $10 million instead of $5 million. Oh, the U.S. Open, the women's Open, yeah, five million and the USGA right. five million. That's our right. Open, U.S. Right. It's. It, it, I, I saw that. That was great that he did that. Yeah. Well, that's great for our for us. Hip hip hooray! Yeah. <laughs> but um, Mike is a, a wonderful person, and and we were so lucky to have him as long as we had. He he really helped uh, us go global when every business in the world went global we went global uh, yeah so yeah i was having uh at a fundraiser for the renee powell's golf course in canton ohio and i was sitting at lunch with a gentleman who worked for smokers jams and jellies and he gave me his business card and it said global and i said global you're global he says we don't make any money here we make it global Right. This is, you know, when that was the big deal. Now it's kind of quieted down and not, we're not as global anymore. We're coming back here. Right. So right. that's a little difference. But um, I think probably the most fun time in, the, in my career in teaching was being at Tamar's Country Club because um, it was the beginning of golf in the desert and it was a... Uh, Jewish club, which had a lot of entertainers from Hollywood and directors. And um, I taught uh, Kirk Douglas. Wow. The uh, Marx Brothers, Harper was my favorite. And so I taught oh. Danny Kaye and yeah. Cole and Ambassador Walter Enver. Oh, wow. And I called him Zorro because he played left-handed and he looped the club. And... Um, we had a lot of fun. He had his own golf course, right, Shirley, at, well, at his uh, grounds? In the beginning, cameras bought enough land to build 36 holes. And the clubhouse was going to be, uh, the clubhouse they have now was going to be the halfway house. And they were going to have 36 holes, which they never developed. So when Walter Vandenberg used to come out, me and his wife to play. There weren't many members, you know, in the beginning. He just came and they teed off. But then when he came later and there were more members, he had to get a starting time. So he said, Why don't you sell me that piece of property? I'll build my own golf course. So that's what he did. And then and then that became his home. And it's called Sunny Lands. Right. The name of the cabin they used to have. He and his family in the mountains, the Pocono Mountains or someplace. That's why I used that name. Got and it. now it's in a trust and, and it's a beautiful uh, area. It's a nine hole golf course and their home is there and both their bodies are buried on Buried the there. Right. right. But it was Tamara's originally interesting i didn't realize that so yeah so so you had all these celebrities you had jack benny too right wasn't he one of your students yes, yes. he uh, originally he took lessons from helen bettweiler when she was at thunderbird in the beginning before there was cameras and then helen i think moved away or i don't remember why but he he, he liked playing lessons and we would go out to play and um He'd keep watching his, looking at his watch and looking at his watch. And he said, I've got to go home pretty soon. And I said, well, why? He said, I've got to practice. And I said, you got to practice? He said, I practice the violin every day. See, I just come out here to relax. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he, uh, 
couple of times he needed a ride home. I drove him back home into Palm Springs. He was a very nice gentleman. And uh, they were all very friendly, you know, to the to help and a lot of doctors and lawyers and they made sure that we uh, had our teeth taken care of and we took the vaccinating shots and we were healthy, you know. And uh, I've had, they've, they've been friends all my life, most of them. A lot of them are dead now because the average age was 73 when I went there. Yeah. But now it's all the young people that are coming and they, they're there for the spa and the, and the uh, paddle ball. And uh, I, don't, I don't think they have a swimming pool. I don't think they do. Yeah, no, I don't think they do either. But um, no, those are a lot of wonderful memories. They gave me an honorary membership a year ago. Oh, wonderful. So do you still go over there at all or just to see folks? Well, I haven't or? recently, but, you know, you have to, uh, no one can go to clubhouse unless you have your vaccination. Vaccination, right. Your mask. Mask, and, yeah. Uh, they're very uh, cautious there. And uh, the lady who teaches there is very busy, very busy. She's booked to, for two months in advance. That's wow, two funny. months. Wow. Uh, wow, yeah. It's, so it's golf is on the on the uprise. Yeah. It is, and I it'll be interesting, Shirley. Once we get past this pandemic, if people will stick with it, I hope they do. But um, you're absolutely well, right. It's clubs, you know, um, a lot of clubs when we had a recession, a lot of clubs uh, didn't have members. Uh, like in the resort area, like in Florida or Texas or California. In a resort area, that was their second club, and they came for so many months in the winter. So when right. they had a session, they had to make a decision: which club are we going to keep, and which club are we going to let go? So clubs lost members, so they couldn't afford to uh, serve food to the for breakfast, lunch, and dinner anymore. So a lot of clubs begin to convert their clubhouses like into hotels where they have meeting rooms. So they've taken and put in a meeting room. So on Mondays, by law, you're allowed the uh, public to come into a private area on a Monday. So they could rent it out and get enough money to pay the help to serve food to members. So that's how they kept moving forward. So a lot of these clubs look like a Brits car room. <laughs> they don't look like a golf club anymore. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, my friend Kathy and I went to a Southern California PGA meeting over in Newport Beach area. And the clubhouse is so now designed that you don't know where you're going to find the golf part of it. And we... Uh, called to have a Uber pick us up and we went to the wrong door and they never, never <laughs> found us, you know. So <laughs> club, clubs have changed a great deal. They're, they're both open and closed at the same time. <laughs> you know, you're you're 100% right, Shirley. You're exactly right. Have um, you played golf at Brentwood? I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, so, uh, Florence uh, was a, the lady club champion that forever she just passed away i think a year ago francis hirsch oh sure yeah mrs yeah, hirsch uh, i remember her yes your golf pro uh, patrick casey is now going to be a general manager of a club in at laguna miguel exactly you right uh, his father joe casey is a very good friend he and his wife are friends of mine that come to see me and and that's yeah, how that's what's going on. Yeah, and, and Joe mentioned that. So I talked to Joe about a month or so ago and he mentioned you. Um uh -huh. and, yeah. and so that's how we got connected. Joe, Joe was wonderful talking about you know his time in upstate New York and well, you know we, uh, we, we exchange we exchange books. Uh, he has a good collection of books and I have he a good told, He told me that. I told him I'm going to have to come out to Palm Springs and look at his 
collection because I have about 200 golf books, but he sounds like he has a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's uh, keeping busy and gets out of the house. He's being the uh, ambassador ranger at uh, uh, Indian Wells Country Club. Right. He mentioned that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's a great, he's, he's a great guy, um, but um, wonderful guy. Hey, Shirley, I want to tell you, this has been wonderful. I mean, I appreciate you spending so much time um, and talking through all these wonderful memories. This has been really, really great. Um, and um, uh, I, and I, and again, I loved your, got it right here. I loved your book. It was terrific. And I super enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, I, I think so. The nice thing about the book, it, it just tells a life that I led through the golf industry. Right. And uh, and someone said, well, why did you go here? And why did you go there? And why did you go somewhere else? I said, it was always a new challenge or something yep. I wanted to learn. And being a teacher, I'm always in the learning mood. I ask questions. I go to a golf course and say, look at that tree over there. Never saw a tree like that. What kind of tree is that? Well, well, what do you want to know for? I said, I've never seen a tree like that. I'd like to know what it is. I ask questions all the time. People think, why do you ask so many questions? I don't know. You only learn by asking. I, Shirley, I love that about you. And you couldn't be more correct. That's how you learn is asking questions. I've always believed that. I, totally I learned agree. that at college because the first two years I didn't open my mouth and I just got an average grade. The minute I raised my hand and asked questions, I got a better grade. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. That's great. Shirley, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully, if I come out there to see Joe, maybe I'll get a chance to meet you one yeah, of these right. days. But, Very good. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I appreciate and, it. And make sure you hold your finish till the ball lands. Good advice. I will do that. Thank you, Shirley. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.